Well, we'll have our congregational singing after the message tonight. And I am privileged to bring to you God's Word from Mark chapter 15 this evening. It was last Sunday morning, just five days ago, that we were looking into the beginning of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ in Mark chapter 15, how the Son of God, the King of Israel, was detested by both the Jews and the Gentiles, mocked, beaten, and crucified. And so tonight, we will continue that story, picking up in Mark chapter 15, verses 33 to 47, as you see on the screen. We have a very simple outline for the text tonight. The Son of God dies. The Son of God is buried. A very sobering thought that the Son of God would die and that the Son of God would be laid as a corpse in a tomb. I'm glad that that is not the case today. But let's look into it. I'll read for you from Mark chapter 15, verse 33, concerning the death of the Son of God. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let's see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, This man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the Younger and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. We're told that it was the sixth hour when darkness fell over the whole land. If you look in the footnote in the English Standard Version translation, you'll see that that translates to noon for our time. So from noon until three, there was a supernatural darkness over the face of the land, at least of Israel, perhaps even farther. Now we know that there would not be a natural eclipse of the sun at this time because Passover was always at full moon. And you can't have an eclipse during a full moon. So this is very much like what I would imagine the darkness that covered the land of Egypt during the second to the last plague in the days of Moses. Also in the scriptures repeatedly, the darkness covering the sky, the sun's light failing, is associated with God's judgment and with the day of the Lord. You can read about it in Amos chapter 8 and in Joel chapter 2 that the light of day failing during the strength of the day is a sign of God's judgment. And that's what was taking place on that day. Good Friday was good for us in that the substitute took our place and was judged in our place, but it was not good for the Lord Jesus. It was the exact opposite. And to be under the judgment of God, God let the world know that he was judging sin 
in the body of Jesus Christ at the cross by shrouding the light of the sun during the heat of the day. Now, Mark is very brief in his account of the crucifixion. He doesn't go into as many details as the other gospel writers. He only records one saying of the Lord Jesus Christ from the cross, and that is one that also is recorded in the Gospel of Matthew. When Jesus cries out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And of course, because we just had our scripture reading, you are reminded that that is a quotation from Psalm 22, verse 1. And so the one thing that Mark records for us, Jesus saying at the crucifixion in his gospel, is a quotation from an Old Testament psalm. Now there's several things that are interesting about this. One is that it was misunderstood by the bystanders. That many of those who were standing by, when they heard him say, Eloi, Eloi, they thought he was saying Eli, calling out for Elijah. Now, apparently, there was a tradition, some folklore, among the Jewish people at that time, that because Elijah had ascended into heaven without dying, that therefore he was capable of of coming back and lending aid to those who would call upon him and be suffering. There's many superstitions that arise among all religions, and Christianity and Judaism also have their superstitions that arise. And this appears to be one that was extant at the time of Jesus Christ, that people thought, if you're in dire straits, you can call and perhaps Elijah will come to rescue you from your troubles. This is recorded later in Jewish writings, but it probably goes back to this time in light of the misunderstanding of Jesus' cry on the cross. Now, What I want you to notice about the misunderstanding of Jesus' cry on the cross is that the bystanders still don't understand Jesus. This has been a constant theme throughout the Gospel of Mark. A number of months ago, we started in Mark chapter 1, and we found that from the beginning, people misunderstood the words of Jesus. Not just the crowds, but even Jesus' own disciples had a difficult time understanding him. Now, here... They not only have a difficult time understanding the words, but also very often they misunderstood the meaning of Jesus' words. And also, you see the crowd continuing not only to misunderstand Jesus, but also to be interested in Jesus more as an entertainer, some kind of religious entertainment, rather than the Son of God that they should worship and obey and follow. And this is sadly true for many people today that we're still following the line of those people who misunderstood Jesus in the first century. There's much misunderstanding about the person of Jesus, the work of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus in our world now, even as there was then. And sadly, many religious people are more interested in religious entertainment than in a life change of following the Lord Jesus Christ and becoming his disciple. And so... They're standing around the cross and they're wondering, wow, wouldn't that be something if Elijah came and rescued him from the cross? Maybe one more miracle, one more sign, one more awesome thing that we could see that would just make our day. And so they gave him a little bit of sour wine to drink, hoping that if they gave him something to drink, it might prolong his life long enough for Elijah to hear the prayer and to come and rescue him. That seems to be the motivation of those in the crowd for offering him this drink of sour wine. Now you remember earlier in the crucifixion account in this chapter that Jesus refused to drink 
the wine that was mixed with myrrh because he had chosen to suffer with full consciousness without any of the drug of alcohol impairing his senses and that he'd refused that earlier. But here he accepts the drink of the sour wine. Now, sour wine was a common drink in the ancient world. It was thought to quench thirst better than just water. Now, I haven't tested that theory myself. I don't handle sour wine as well as those who were probably used to drinking it. Of course, we drink some, some strange drinks that take some getting used to as well. But the sour wine was inexpensive, and it was something that the common people would drink. And so it was nearby. They had a jug of it. The soldiers might have brought it with them. And one of these bystanders gives Christ a drink, and Christ accepts it. Now, why does Christ accept this drink? but he didn't accept the earlier one. Well, this is after three hours on the cross before the darkness and three hours on the cross during the darkness. After he's been on the cross now for six hours, he is about ready to give up the ghost, as the old saying goes. And therefore, he no longer has to suffer with the concern of impairing his judgment He no longer has to be worried about impairing his judgment for the time of his suffering on the cross with this taste of alcohol because it's over and he is about to die. And most likely he is taking this because of fulfillment of prophecy. Psalm 69 verse 21 says, They gave me poison for food and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. And we find that the book of Psalms has many future prophetic fulfillments in the life of Jesus Christ. And this is one of those, the sour wine that was given to Christ to drink on the cross. Now, the other thing I want to focus on here in the death of the Son of God is the content of Jesus' cry. We looked at how the common the people around misunderstood it. But let's take a look then at the content of what Jesus actually did say. And quoting from Psalm 22, verse 1, he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What does that mean? Was Jesus forsaken by God upon the cross? Yes, he was. And this is something that goes beyond human comprehension. For if you know who Jesus Christ is, if you understand that he is not just a mere human being, but he is the unique Son of God, meaning that before the world was, he was with God the Father forever as the second person of the Trinity, the Word of God. And for the Trinity to forsake another member of the Trinity, for the Father to forsake the Son, is something that goes beyond anything that we could ever understand. How is that even possible? And yet that is the significance of what Jesus Christ cries here. Now, we shouldn't think that Jesus doesn't know why God has forsaken him. Jesus has already made it abundantly clear throughout the Gospel of Mark that he knows why he's going to the cross as it says in Mark chapter 10, that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So he knows that he is laying down his life as a ransom for others, and he knows that that is the reason why God is forsaking him. A scripture verse here that I think is helpful is 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 21, where it says, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. 
Why did God forsake Jesus on the cross? Well, it's because God made him to be sin for our sake. We who are sinners, God took the sins that we had committed, the sins that we are defined by, and he placed them as an act of judicial transfer upon Jesus Christ. So that while Christ was on the cross during those hours of darkness, the judgment of God for the sins of the world was being experienced by Jesus. That's why he was forsaken. And that, more than the physical torture of the cross, is what brings out the cry from Jesus' heart. That is what pains him more than the excruciating pain of the nails in his hands and in his feet. Christ is confessed by the centurion in verses 37 and 38. Let's take a look at those verses again. As I read earlier, Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And then the confession comes in verse 39. When the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. Now a centurion was a Roman soldier who was in charge of a hundred men. He wasn't a high-ranking officer, but he was an officer who had shown himself capable and moved up through the ranks, and now he was in charge of a squad or a group of 100 soldiers. And a centurion would be placed in charge of each crucifixion, and other soldiers that were under his command would be aiding and carrying out the crucifixion while he oversees it and makes sure that everything goes according to plan. And if anything goes wrong, well, then the centurion is the one who has to pay for it with his life. You can't let a condemned man go. And so it's the centurion's job to make sure that the condemned died according to their sentence. And so he's there, and he's observing, and he's watching, and he's superintending the whole thing. And we are told that when he saw that Jesus Christ breathed his last in a unique way, in a powerful way that had a deep impression upon him, that he confessed, and this is key because the centurion is the first man in the Gospel of Mark to confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God with faith. Now earlier the high priest had mentioned by just asking him the question, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus Christ confessed and said that I am. But the high priest didn't believe it. He was just asking him to try to incriminate him. But here, the first man to confess on his lips faith in Jesus Christ as the Son of God is at his crucifixion. It's when he dies. That's when the revelation of who Jesus Christ is hits home. And that's where we are here tonight. That when you understand the death of Jesus Christ, when you see and perceive why he died, why he was crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Then you come to understand Jesus Christ for the first time. That's when the light dawns upon us as well, even as this centurion. And the other thing that's significant about this is that this centurion was not a Jew. He was a Gentile. And so Mark, writing the gospel for the Gentiles in the city of Rome, makes it clear that the climax of his gospel, the confession of who Jesus Christ is on the lips of man, comes from a Roman at that time. 
to encourage the Gentile believers that Jesus Christ came, that his own people didn't understand him. His own people just thought of him as some kind of miracle worker and entertainer. But that for those who God chose, both from the Jews and from the Gentiles, we understand that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And the scripture says, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God has eternal life. Now, as we look at the confession of Jesus Christ on the lips of this centurion, that he is the Son of God, Notice that what makes the lasting impact upon him, that what makes the change in his perspective, is the way in which Christ breathed his last. I would have liked to have been there, be able to see the way in which Jesus Christ breathed his last. Now there were many other amazing things that were going on at that time. Matthew records an earthquake. We hear about the curtain of the temple being torn in two. Very unlikely that the centurion would be able to see the curtain of the temple from where they were crucifying these criminals. But there was also this supernatural darkness that was over the face of the land. and Over the head of Jesus was the charge against him that he is the king of Israel. And so even though this man is not a Jew, he's there in Israel... He's not oblivious to the charges against Christ and what people around him are saying about Christ. And when he sees the way in which Christ breathed his last, he says, it's got to be true. This has to be the Son of God. Now why? Why would the way in which he died make such an impact upon this centurion? He'd seen many people crucified, most likely. And normally, when a crucified man dies, he dies struggling for breath. What happens with crucifixion is because of the position that the body is in when they nail the arms outstretched upon the the tree is that you have to lift yourself up on the nail that is between your legs, between your feet, between your ankles in order to get air into your lungs. Your lungs work by the diaphragm and it has to pump air in and out. And and so the physiology is, is that When someone is on the cross long enough, they get so exhausted that they basically suffocate because they're no longer able to lift themselves up and breathe. That's not the way that Jesus died. Jesus didn't die helplessly on the cross, slowly having his life drained away until the point where he no longer had the strength to be able to lift himself up and breathe. But instead, right before he died, he lets out this loud cry which shows that he is able to breathe. You can't do a loud cry if you're dying of asphyxiation. And so this reminds me of what the Gospel of John says concerning how Jesus Christ breathed his last. It says in John 10, 18, Jesus' words, No one takes it from me, that is my life, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. And so the cross didn't kill Jesus. Jesus laid down his life, and the centurion saw it. He saw how Jesus Christ just bowed his head and breathed his last, and that he had the power to choose to die. That's an amazing power. Many people who have been tortured and crucified and been denied death, but have had their life prolonged because of the torturer's will, could wish that they had the power to just stop living. But Jesus did have that power. He had that authority given to him from God. And so, when he bowed his head, after the time of bearing our sins in his body on the tree was over, 
He just died of his own will, of his own power. The ability to die at will, as impressive as it is, is not quite as impressive as the power to take back your life again. And that's what he talks about here. I have authority to take it up again. And that's what he's going to do. It's Friday night, but Sunday morning is coming. Now, also at the time of the death of Jesus Christ, Mark records one other detail that is worthy of our attention, and that is that the temple of the curtain was torn from top to bottom in two. Now, the question here is, which temple curtain are we talking about? There was one that separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place, and that was the one that only the high priest would go in once a year into the most holy place, the Holy of Holies. That curtain, if it was torn from top to bottom, well, then only the high priest would have noticed it. It wasn't visible to everyone else. It is quite possible that that is the one that was torn and that they tried to repair it without anyone noticing, but word got out and that it was able to be reported among the people that this did, in fact, happen. Or it's also possible that it was the temple that separated the holy place from the outer court that would have been visible to all the people, that that was the temple curtain that was torn from top to bottom. But whichever one it was, there's some deep significance. What does it mean? Why did God do that? You asked yourself that question? We all know the story of the crucifixion of Jesus. We hear it every year. But why did God tear the temple curtain? Well, if it was that inner temple curtain, it could very well connect with what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 20, that now the way to God is open, that in the flesh of Christ there's been opened up for us a way into the most holy place. And that when God was tearing that curtain apart, he was saying, no longer are you forbidden from entering into my presence. No longer is it just the high priest who once a year can come in to the most holy place in my very presence, but now every believer... Every saint, every Christian has full access to the most holy place and that we don't have to fear. We don't have to stand far apart from God. But that because the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin, we have full, confident access to the presence of God, both now in this life and immediately upon death. There's no time of probation. There's no time away from God's presence to pay for our sins, but that Jesus Christ has paid for our sins once for all. And so that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord immediately in his presence. That could be the signification of what is happening here. But I think there's also a second layer of meaning in the tearing of the temple curtain. And this ties in with what Jesus had predicted earlier concerning the destruction of the temple. When the disciples were pointing out all the beautiful stones and he said to them, I tell you truly that not one stone will be left upon another that will not be torn down, that the death of Jesus Christ presages the end of the old order the end of the Levitical system. Our Melchizedekian high priest has come and has instituted the new covenant and therefore the old things are ready to pass away. And this is symbolized in the the tearing of the curtain in the temple. So I think it's both a symbol of the new and also a symbol, therefore, of the old passing away. Now, that brings us to the burial of Jesus Christ. At the end of verse 41... Jesus Christ has breathed his last in the previous paragraph. The Son of God is physically dead. Now for the burial. 
Let me read for you, starting in verse 42. When evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died, and summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Somewhere between three o'clock and six o'clock, late afternoon before sundown, Joseph of Arimathea had to hurry to get the body of Jesus Christ buried. For the scripture said in the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy that if a man commits a crime worthy of death and he hangs on a tree, you have to take him down before the nightfall, before the Sabbath, lest he defile the land with his corpse hanging open on the tree. Isn't that interesting that Moses wrote about what to do with a body of a man that is hung on a tree for crimes that he has done. Jesus Christ had no crimes, but he paid for ours, and there he is hanging on the tree. And so the bodies of the criminals must be taken down before sunset, before Sabbath begins. This time tonight, we're already past 7.30. Jesus Christ would have already been in the tomb, already in the grave. Before sunset was when Joseph got all this done. Now, Arimathea is not a town that we are certain of its location. Most likely, it's the town of Ramah, you hear about in the Old Testament, 20 miles northwest of Jerusalem. But we're not exactly sure. One of these curiosities of history where place names get changed and we don't always know where they are. But we know the name, Joseph of Arimathea, will forever be well known. He didn't live in Arimathea anymore. He'd moved to Jerusalem. He had this tomb prepared for him and his family, but no one had used it yet. And he takes courage, it says there, to go and ask Pilate for the body of Jesus. Joseph of Arimathea, we are told, is a respected member of the council. That would be the Sanhedrin. So we see that not every member of the Sanhedrin was against Jesus Christ. But the Gospel of John tells us that he was a secret disciple of Jesus. But here, he allows his cloak of secrecy to slip and he takes courage in order to identify himself with a condemned man. Jesus Christ has been condemned by his own counsel on the charge of blasphemy. What does it mean for a man to stand up then and to take ownership of that body and to give it an honorable burial after the rest of the council had handed him over to those who would spit on him and beat him, after the high priest had torn his cloak and said, Behold how he blasphemes. Now this respected member of the council is going to go and ask, May I please give Jesus a proper burial? Normally, crucifixion victims would not be receiving a good burial. Rome is trying to send a message. They don't want people who are crucified to be honored. They'd prefer that the birds eat their flesh. They'd prefer that they sit out in the open and rot. But the Jewish people had high sensitivities about these things and Pilate knew that he couldn't do what Romans normally did with crucified bodies. And so they probably would have thrown the bodies into a shallow grave and covered them up hastily with all the other criminals. But in this case, Joseph goes to Pilate to ask for the body. 
Now, not only does this put him on the outs with his own people, but it also puts him in danger with Pilate. Pilate's probably not in a very good mood. He doesn't like what the Jews have done to him this day, how they outmaneuvered him and coerced him into crucifying Jesus. But the fact that Pilate does grant him the body, even though he's not a family member, shows that Pilate does have some regret, perhaps, some sympathy towards this innocent man that he knew had done nothing wrong, and yet he had him crucified anyway. And so perhaps this is some kind of act of penance on Pilate's part. Perhaps it's Pilate's own knowledge that Jesus Christ was not a revolutionary and posed no real threat, and so it would be fine if he was given a proper Jewish burial. Whatever was going through Pilate's mind, he grants the request because of God's providence because of the prophetic scriptures, which say in Isaiah chapter 53, that though they had made his grave with the wicked, he was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. So the burial of Jesus Christ also in fulfillment of prophetic scripture. Joseph bought the linen shroud, he wrapped him in it, he laid him in the tomb that had been cut out of the rock, and he rolled the stone against the entrance of the tomb. Jesus Christ is dead. Jesus Christ is buried. It's Friday night, but Sunday is coming.